Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jarrell Mason, better known as J. Mason Psalm, and welcome to a very special edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get inside the entertainment industry and outside of it with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have a good friend of mine. We came up together through the ranks at WAG in Greensboro, North Carolina. She saw pretty much all the work that went into the time machine, which later morphed into Beyond the Album Cover. And she's doing a thing right now, currently going for her PhD in pop culture, cultural studies. And she will check you quick, fast, and hurry if you don't know your stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome <laughs> my good buddy, Alicia Swizz to Beyond the Album Cover. Welcome. Hey, 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 it's so good to be here. Thank you for that introduction. Man, I appreciate it. It feels good to have you on and having had previous WAG alums on to pretty much just reminisce and talk about where we are currently and how it all started at that tiny 13-watt station. Oh my gosh, it's I feel so lucky and just privileged and really honored that I got to be there during that time because I actually came in, it was the last year of the Taylor building. So I got really, really lucky that I got to be in that, like you said, kind of basement, small space. And then we moved into obviously like kind of a nicer area, but I think it still kind of kept that same intimacy, you know, which was definitely the thing that connected all of us at um, WUAG. Yeah, just the love for the music. Mm -hmm. Definitely big shout out to everybody that was at UAG, Prez, Kyle, Show Smooth, now known as Chris Lee, who's currently lead sports anchor for WRL and uh, Raleigh Durham, Jack, Kyle Butler. Eric. Kyle Butler's still out there doing stuff, I think, um, in Greensboro. I think he works for the paper there. He was the sports director when I was there. Mm -hmm. now right that before leads, me yeah mm -hmm. now that leads to my question how did you end up at UNCG and WAG in particular oh yeah so well I did my dad I'm actually from like the Philly Jersey area and so my dad moved to North Carolina when I was in high school and I didn't want to go to high school here but by the time college rolled around there were so many more options for good dynamic schools like in the UNC and just the North Carolina state system so um, I did my undergrad at UNCW and then I lived in Charlotte for a while and I just really wanted to go back to school. Um, I had minored in women's and gender studies and really felt like I had just scratched the surface of what I really wanted to learn about. And so I ended up at UNCG specifically because I wanted to stay in state and their women's and gender studies master's program was just starting. So I was actually, this is another thing that I consider really special about my time at UNCG. I went there and graduated as the first graduating class of the Masters of Women's and Gender Studies. So again, just like it was really intimate. We had a small group, but a really um, diverse and dynamic group. Um, I had great professors and same thing with WAG. I, I was in grad school. So I was kind of older than your average DJ, you know, and not only that, I was in grad school like five years after graduating from undergrad, you know, so I was in my late 20s and I just, I called before school even started and I got the voicemail and I'll never forget hearing Jack Bonnie's voice and just kind of being like, who's this guy? Like, I was just like right away curious and interested. And then I went to the website 
And then my, as soon as I moved there, I went to Jack's office and said, Hey, can I do a show? You know, and you had to train and everything. So I trained, I think over the summer. And so in fall, I was able to do a show, um, which is great because the master's program was only two years. That's time at like where you're DJ to really get in there. And I was really lucky too. Yeah. So that's my story. Yeah, definitely a great one because you mentioned at the top of the interview how WAG initially we were literally underground because we were at the very bottom of the Taylor building before moving to Brown. And I can remember right. doing play season, we would have to close the doors to the studio because they'll be doing a performance upstairs and cast members will be coming up, going, going up, going down, changing, going back on stage. So it was really underground gritty like you had to stay up to god yeah. awful times early in the morning to catch your favorite show yeah well and i think that sort of just speaks to radio culture too and even it you know you don't have to be of a certain age to appreciate it but you certainly have to be of a certain age to have remembered when the radio was all you had you know and obviously like hip-hop fans have a very special relationship to that you know because it was about like finding the one station you know or the one place that you could hear music that wasn't being played everywhere else and i think college radio has always been a really important site for that too and you know, it really speaks, gives so much credit to UNCG as a university for keeping the station and keeping it alive. And to Jack Bonnie, who was definitely the most formative person there because he actually had, you know, the professional role of general manager, which gave him a lot of resources and time and energy to really be able to like curate it, like you said, you know? Yeah. Yeah. People stayed up to ungodly hours, like you said, just to do a show because they didn't want to not have a show. You know? <laughs> yeah, because I can remember my first semester coming in. I wanted to get the prime slot, which is like Friday night, seven to nine or nine to eleven. But Jack was like, no, you gotta work the graveyard uh -uh. shift first. So I was doing two to four AMs for that whole first yeah. semester and would carry my 90 minute TDK cassette tape to record my shows underneath the deck. Kids, Google a cassette tape, you'll know what it is. But like how you mentioned how <laughs> in the early days of hip hop, college radio, underground radio was where it got heard because major stations weren't really touching hip hop until let's say around 85, 86 with the likes of Mr. Magic and the Rap Attack and on BLS, Red Alert, Chuck Chill Out on Kiss, Lady B Street B on Power 99 out of Philly, or any other radio mm -hmm. station, rap show, depending on what station you're in. But college radio definitely played an important part in hip hop. Yeah. Look at the legendary documentary uh, about Stretch and Bobito and their classic hip hop radio show at Columbia University. Well, that's a good one. I don't know that documentary. I have to watch it. But yeah, and just, you know, a college radio and just any underground radio in general, you know, anything a little bit off the map. And I think that's one thing that has kept me attracted to academia as much as it's, you know, still just another institution. It allows for these things that might get antiquated to still sort of flourish, you know, because there's a respect for the medium, which is kind of cool, you know. Mm -hmm. And a good documentary that you should definitely check out, directed by Nas. 
uh, founded by the company Mass Appeal. You are now watching Video Music Box about the legendary, still active show, Video Music Box with Uncle Ralph McDaniels and how before you on TV raps, before Rap City, if you lived in the tri-state area, wow. then you knew about Video mm -hmm. Music Box. So can we talk about its yeah. impact and how it superseded those national video shows and how it's still going strong to this day? Yeah, I'll be honest, that was before my time because I did live in the tri-state area, but I I remember like the TV shows, but like even before Yo MTV Raps, there was just like the box. And that was like something that we got in Philly, but I don't know the show you're referencing. Yeah, so you'll have to tell me. Yeah, Video Music Box is pretty much a local New York-based show, but if you grew up in the tri-state area, New you York. grew up watching it. But thanks to the internet, everyone mm -hmm. around the world can see it, and they're currently doing a fundraiser to digitize all those archival footage that's still sitting on VHS tapes. So definitely go down oh, nice. to nice. Video Music Box yeah. so that we can get those tapes preserved because it's hip-hop history. Uncle Ralph has interviews mm -hmm. with artists before they became huge and like i said it's still active to this day and you can also get video music box merch now while we're on the subject of hip-hop still hip-hop for a long time has been a boys club but then you had the likes mm -hmm. of pebbly poo sparky d mc shyrock from funky four plus one more and then later on salt and pepper mc light queen latifah Moni Love, Missy, we could go yeah. down the list of Little Kim, Foxy Brown, of all the women that came and broke those barriers for hip hop. Mm -hmm. So when did you first fall in love with it? And who was the female artist that specifically told you, okay, hip hop's for girls too? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that those were my entry points, kind of that second round you mentioned, Queen Latifah. Well, Queen Latifah specifically because I was in New Jersey, and I don't think where you are always necessitates, but in something like hip-hop that had these tributaries really coming out of New York, you know, in the Bronx and seeing the way it filtered. But um, it was Queen Latifah and Moni Love Ladies First. Like, and I still, till this day, like I'll show that video and talk about it in class. I still know all the words and both of their rapping. And to this day, I mean, I know Moni Love isn't putting out stuff as much and Queen Latifah, you know, AKA Dana Owens has certainly made like a career in other ways, but you know, Queen Latifah from day one was being explicitly feminist was being explicitly outspoken. You know, she was also one of the few, like to your point, women members of this like conscious rap group. Like me, I think she associated with Native Tongues at that time. And to be honest, like Tribe Called Quest was real. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. It was a boy who got me into hip hop, you know, unfortunately, but it was like my little boyfriend making me mixtapes over his mom's like old, like Barry Manilow cassettes. And he would put like a post, no, so this was like seventh grade for me. That was like 89, 90. So that's so I was right of the age of it. You know, we were going out and buying singles to play at the middle school dances, you know. But um, yeah, definitely Queen Latifah and MC Light at the time, you know, just because I was outside of Philly, so that was getting airplay and you were hearing just the singles. But I was also such a huge pop fan. So like I had been a fan of like Janet Jackson from like day one. And so 
even at the time you wouldn't have called Janet Jackson hip hop, but like Rhythm Nation for me was really getting me politicized. And I think for me, and it's not this case for everyone. And I think regardless of race, not everyone is brought to activism, you know, but a lot of people are. And for me, we were doing Rhythm Nation in my like sixth grade jazz class. And I was like, what is this about? You know, like I wanted to like know more of the politic of it. And so when hip hop came around and you had Queen Latifah, you know, talking about like, there's no time to rehearse. I'm divine and my mind expands throughout the universe. I was like in eighth grade being like, yeah, I want more of this, you know, and you don't really know the world is sexist yet. I think I did have a much more awareness of how the world was racist because I had lived in very different communities where you could kind of see the racial politics a little more. But, you know, sexist politics, you can't always see in the same way. So they kind of come to you later. And, um, you know, you mentioned Bell Hooks early on, and I've gone on to become not just a feminist, but a feminist academic. And I'll be the first to say that Black women radical thought totally what opened up my own feminism, even as a white woman, you know? So it's really just the praxis of thought that says, okay, like this like master slave narrative, no matter how it shows up, is not helping anybody. And that's what we need to like tear down. And so I use hip hop a lot. I use film, like, you know, those are the spaces I teach, but that whole dynamic is what informs, you know, our entire culture. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I so, agree. yeah. And, uh, and then Lil' Kim. Yeah. Sorry. I was just going to say, you brought up Lil' Kim. Um, I, you know, she came out right I was in like graduating high school, getting into early college. So it's just kind of interesting because it was the same time I, as a woman, was becoming more sexual just by the nature of my age, you know, and evolution. And so you did, you had Lil' Kim, you had Foxy Brown, you had these women like finally in the conversation, but you can't ignore that they were the only women too surrounded by men, you know, and then they always get positioned against each other you know um and we definitely still see that happen today yeah definitely r.i.p to um bell hooks and how you mentioned how a lot yes. of the early female pioneers of hip-hop got into the door through the cosign of a male mc like i mentioned MC yeah Star rock was in funky four plus one mm -hmm. more Roxanne Shantae mm -hmm. was down with the Juice Crew. Yo-Yo was mm -hmm. great example. Ice Cube. So right. pretty much it was like, you can't oh, stand on your Yo -Yo. own too as a merit right. unless a man got you into the door. Salt and Pepper, Herbie Lovebug. And Salt and Pepper really, you know, on some effect did, you know, because their whole thing was, you know, I got an all-girl band and we have a woman DJ spinning, you know, so even though you're totally right, right? Behind the scenes, the producers, the person who got them in the door and perhaps even the label they're signed on, it's always men in the background, usually holding the power. Um, and so you have seen that shift a little bit contemporary, which is a positive. You see a lot more women in hip hop these days, not just like espousing the financial independence, but really owning shit, you know, and having other projects aside from their musicianship because 
they get it now. You know, that's certainly been the lesson learned, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy to think how, and it's crazy to think how our era of music that we grew up in, it was like that last period where regardless of genre, it was diverse across the board. How you mentioned Janet Jackson, all of the hip hop artists we mentioned, even pop acts like Paul Abdul, New Kids on the Block, mm -hmm. Head, Hip Hop, mm -hmm. and RB influences. And then Mm -hmm. 1992 hit a legendary album by dr dre came out called the chronic and it completely changed the game for hip-hop and mm -hmm. next year it'd be 30 years old and also they will be doing a super bowl halftime show for this super bowl with dr dre snoop dogg kendrick lamar eminem oh really Mary j blotch yep for this year's super bowl because the super bowl will be held in los angeles so it's going to be straight la so can we talk about the impact of dr dre and what he means to music well i mean i think for a lot of people especially now on the national stage you know dre has been able to like be seen as like a businessman which you know for all intents and purposes and fucked up as it is, you know, the old school trope of a businessman was a white collar white dude, you know, and a shitty ethical white collar white dude. And, you know, Dre certainly isn't perfect. A lot of men in hip hop aren't, you know, but he's made his mark through craft. And I think what has been most influential about Dre in legitimizing hip hop is really saying this is a craft like these beats you hear these samples you hear it's not just stealing you know it's not just co-opting other music for like ignorant people who would think it is um but i do think that there are a lot of people talented to dre it's just a matter of if you want to be on the main stage if you want to be shaking hands with apple <laughs> versus if you know you don't um yeah, I think the influence is really more like also bringing the West Coast kind of vision and sound to that main stage, you know, and in my class, uh, we do look at like Dre and Snoop videos um, compared to like, you know, Public Enemy, you know, or Tribe Called Quest videos, you know, so it's always kind of interesting to just see um, what the cultural influence is. And I think the reason I do that is we have to diversify what people think about black people, just period, you know? So even if it's just through the lens of hip hop, you know, this is what it looks like when it came out of this neighborhood. This is what it looked like when it came out of this neighborhood across the country, you know? I I grew, I spent a lot of time in the South, you know, we're here talking about North Carolina, you know? So, you know, back in the day, Outkast was really the big Southern voice, but now, you know, we've seen so many Southern artists come out and into the mainframe. And, the whole cadence of the way they flow is different, you know? And I think that's true for women too, right? Women come onto the stage and even when they mirror masculine identities, right? They talk about sex, they get vulgar, they do it in a feminine way, right? They talk about their wet ass pussies and the kind of sex they wanna have. And I think that's the coolest thing about hip hop as just like a activist space, you know? Not just for, civil rights and black empowerment, but for women's empowerment, you know, for queer empowerment, which we're seeing, you know. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. all about taking ownership because I remember being 11, 12 years old and when Little Kim's Hardcore came out, how controversial it was. And like you mentioned, Cardi B, Meg Thee Stallion's WAP and how prior to that you had, 
you know, Foxy Brown. You had put it in your mouth by Akinelli and all the stuff that oh came God. out with Kool I Crew. love that song. Yeah, yeah, classic yeah. record. Well, the thing about put it in your mouth, though, so my brother and I love that song, and we just had his 40th birthday. Because the difference is, like, we talked about Dre, right? We talked about Snoop or Eminem. All of those guys rap about sex explicitly and nobody like bats an eye at it. It's when women rap explicitly about sex that it becomes like racy and raunchy or even like, you know, somebody like Uncle Luke, you know, or NWA when it's not paired with like a user-friendly beat, which is really what the thing Dre did was because nobody was really paying attention to the like controversial lyrics because the beat and the production was so welcoming and easy to digest, you know? And I think that's one of the debates in hip hop too, right? Like when it crosses the line, but um, yeah, I love this trend. I mean, to your point, Lil' Kim, you know, you were 11, 12. Like I was saying, I was a little older when that dropped, you know? And it was the first time I was kind of thinking about blowjobs and shit myself, you know? But if I had heard that when I was 10 or 11, I probably would have been scared of it. You know, that's why Janet Jackson was a little, you know, friendlier at that age for me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, because also if you look at 3-6 Mafia, they had Slob on my knob and then the chat came out with Slob on my cat, which was a response to that. And like you mentioned, ownership, taking power. Now, I want to shift yeah. a little bit. We talked about the West Coast, Dre, Death Row, everything that came out of there. But there was one man who in the mid-90s said that I'm going to take what I learned at Uptown, apply it to my own label, have it be street, but have it be sweet enough for your cars and for the clubs. So can we talk about the impact that Diddy and Bad Boy has had on the music industry? Yeah, I know. It's so, like, I'm so torn because I don't like him as a person at all. Like, I don't like a lot of the men in hip-hop, you know? And we're finally kind of coming to that reckoning, and Diddy's one of them, you know? I don't think he treats women like shit. Like, there's plenty of documentation of the women he's... But... To your question, you just can't deny his influence on hip hop in the music industry, you know? And again, I think it's the same thing Dre had, that savviness when you had the opportunity. I know Dre had lots of partners too, but when you have that opportunity to make your craft a business as well, and you know how to do that, you know, it's, you're, it's just really capitalistic, essentially, right? Which it's kind of join them right and you can really kind of only beat them by joining them uh i always wonder what puff diddy you know sean combs's career would be had biggie not passed and you know you know just to add on to that too if tupac had not passed like what would hip-hop look like if those legends had been around long enough to evolve as people, you know, evolve as artists, you know, to see these contemporarily, contemporary like resistances to white supremacy, you know, and all this bullshit. I just, I mean, I know it's kind of sad too, but that's just the kind of thing I always find really curious because Jay-Z is just another person that you can't deny his talent, but you also can't deny the spotlight got a lot bigger when Biggie and Tupac, you know, weren't in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, 
What do you think about that? I want to hear what you think about that. Well, what I think is that you can't deny, you know, their talents and what they contributed to the industry. But like how you mentioned, we are at the dawn of the reckoning with Me Too movement, Time's Up, and how a lot of these bigwigs are going down because people are saying no more. We're not going to stay silent. And it's hard to separate their art and their contributions from what they did, you know, R. Kelly, Russell mm-hmm. Simmons, mm-hmm. Let's go, Harvey Weinstein, mm-hmm. the list goes on and on. And that how so many people have been complicit in letting this go idly by. And right now, everybody's saying, we got social media. We got to collect the voice. We're going to blow the whistle. We're going to stand up. We're going to say no more. And men, we need to stand up with our sisters in solidarity and speak out and support. Yeah, huge. I mean, that's, you just said it right there. And all those examples you gave are great ones. I mean, Russell Simmons, I've been waiting. I've just been waiting for that story to blow because any, any hip hop feminist knows it, you know? So like, and it really just comes back to, I just, um, one of the papers I wrote for to end my semester was on Anita Hill. Cause speaking of 30 year anniversary, this is the 30 year anniversary of Clarence Thomas's hearing. You know, and that testimony, Anita Hill's testimony, it changed the world. It's it's continuously changing the world because at that time, we didn't even have the words sexual harassment. It just wasn't a thing. It's just wild. And so you have to think about at that time, 30 years ago, Harvey Weinstein was a younger executive in Hollywood. You know, all those guys were there building it and and getting away with it you know so it is super important for men contemporary men especially to go listen yeah I maybe I've been riding this boat too or like riding this wave and and kind of getting away with just my privilege of not having to deal with it like even that in of itself but so important for men to get in the game and not because you have a sister or a mother or a girlfriend or whatever, because you're a fucking man who doesn't want to be associated as an entire gender with this shitty ass behavior, right? Or because you just fucking care about women because they're human beings. Because that's really what it all comes back to at the end of the day. And with Black women especially, we still are reckoning with seeing Black people as a collective, as human beings. Black women even worse so because, you know, it's so hard to talk about this, but, oh, I wish I had the book near me that I just read. I'll name it, though. We all know the history of slavery in this country, but we don't, like, know it. Like, it's in our thoughts every day, right? But those ramifications, especially around humanizing Black women, not just seeing them as breeders for your fucking plantation, like, that's real-ass shit. You know, my work is all with slut stuff and slut culture. And like, it looks very different when you do apply the lens of race. But what never differs is the objectification and dehumanization dehumanization of women. And that is like the core thing that we have these industries built on. I mean, like, what are you going to do? Tell people they can't listen to music anymore? No. What do you tell people they can't watch Harvey Weinstein movies anymore? It's like every movie is like that guy has touched like every so on the one hand I want people to like give themselves a break enough so that they don't feel so overwhelmed that they can't like 
involved in some part of it. Like R. Kelly is, that's just so, R. Kelly and Weinstein, right? So big, so dark, so many women. And R. Kelly specifically, young black girls, because he knew nobody fucking cared, you know? So the kind of things where I'm like, yeah, maybe no more R. Kelly on mainstream stations, you know, or in movies or whatever. But like, I'm not going to lie. You hear fucking I believe I could fly. And like that you didn't know then. I didn't know in like 11th grade when that shit was all over the radio. We didn't. I mean, a lot of people did know. That's the whole other thing, though. I mean, this is a whole conversation, but. It's that trick, like you said, I don't think we can separate the art from the artist. We can't, and we can move forward in such a way, but what do we do with 20, 2021 plus years of not doing that? We got, I mean, we're doing the best. We, we got to do some work towards it and also like. Mm-hmm. Now, the one thing that, I was glad about my time at UAG was I got put on to Little Brother. And Little Brother, they came right in when social media was just getting started and they ended up signing Mm -hmm. a major label deal with Atlantic, put out the Mm -hmm. show in 2005. But I felt that had they would have came right when social media was really booming, they would have been bigger. But their style was very very similar Mm -hmm. to, of course, Native Tongues, De La Soul, Mm -hmm. Tribe Called Quest, Mm -hmm. early 90s, Golden Era, aka Backpack Hip Hop. So can we talk about the impact of Little Brother and how they carried on that tradition of lyricists from the South that said, we got something to say, you're going to take us as MCs. Yeah, I mean, I love Little Brother and same as you, I got turned on to them at WUAG and um, never like became like a super avid like listener like oh I'm into them all the time because I still fucking bump my tribe conquest like it will forever you know you fall in love with someone in seventh grade you never fall out of love um but ninth wonder specifically you know has gone on to do like he's an academic more or less you know he's like and I don't I don't think that's the only way to like you know broaden the reach of hip-hop but I think it's a really vital important way you know to get it being more like scholastic and where did he do that um residency like was it at the Smithsonian or something he did some really prestigious residency a couple years ago and he's been really integral in producing uh, and bringing to the stage Rhapsody who I love and she's been a really great voice and again like I don't always agree with her. I saw Rhapsody at uh, the first um, Art of Cool Festival in Durham, which like shout out to a great, I believe like black run hip hop festival in downtown Durham. And she was in conversation with Dr. Yaba Blay, who's amazing on Instagram and the internet. If you don't follow her, she teaches at, um, I think she teaches either at Central or State. I get those confused sometimes. But she was interviewing Rhapsody and asked her about feminism. And Rhapsody was kind of like saying she wasn't a feminist because she's always equated it with like hating men and she doesn't hate men. And she gave a lot of credit to Ninth Wonder just as like a producer who invests, you know, without seeing the limitation of gender, without seeing these other limitations. Um, So that was really cool to hear. Um, And she's been, like I said, just such a, you know, her last album was like a legacy album where every song was attributed to a black woman. And like, 
you just need shit like that. Um, but yeah, little brother, I think was just such an influence in that way for me. And again, just a reminder of like that conscious hip hop that people still really need. And I really wondered to your point, would they have broken more if the internet was there? Because that's always been the issue with conscious rap and all the MCs say like, the audience doesn't want it, you know? Like that 90s moment didn't really sustain, unfortunately. And part of it is because of the ownership, but a lot of it has to do with the audience too, you know? So what are your thoughts on that? How did, how did Little Brother influence you? Are you still rocking with them? Yeah, I still listen to Little Brother. I listened to their recent album that they put out about two years ago, May the Lord Watch. Oh, um, yeah, mine is Ninth Wonder is uh, Fonte and right. rapper Big Pooh. But still, classic Little Brother. So if you've been following from the days of the Chitlin Circuit, the listening yeah. and all of their um, past That's albums, the one I remember, then, the listening. You're going to pretty much get the same content with little brother infante he's on quest love supreme quest loves podcast mm-hmm. and uh he's also a part of a sherman showcase on uh a- ifc which will now be on amc for this upcoming season so fonte is keeping busy i think Pooh is managing and of course ninth is doing doing ninth things producing and being an academic now speaking of academic and film you say you have your students look at videos from the west coast dre and snoop Mm -hmm. and how in that time if you look at movies like boys in the hood menace to society the cult classic my vita loca you see pretty much how for me as a young kid growing up in north carolina I always thought that's mm-hmm. how California was like through the right. lenses of those films, you know, R.I.P. John Singleton mm-hmm. and how he was mm-hmm. able to take the template of what mm-hmm. Mike Lee was doing with Do the Right Thing and School Days and mm-hmm. before him, the late great Melvin Van Peoples and Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song and how you take the lens of what's going on in your neighborhoods and your locales and you just display that to a wider audience. So can we talk about the impact of those three legendary filmmakers and how they helped transform Black cinema? And then we're seeing the influx of Black creatives in the TV space, like Donald Glover with Atlanta, uh, Easter Ray with Insecure, so on and so forth. I mean, we're seeing a lot of especially Black women filmmakers. And, you know, again, to, you know, bring just bring it back to that. Um, yeah, well, you know, Spike Lee, I, I mean, John Single, Boys in the Hood came out again when I was in middle school. Like I saw it in the theater and I remember, I just remember being so influenced by it. Like, and again, you know, it's, it's a culmination of things, right? John Singleton's a great filmmaker and storyteller. You know, those were, that movie launched the career of some of our best actors, people who are still acting today. So you're like, which part is it? You know, was it a compelling story or was it all these phenomenal actors or was it a great first time director who just kept proving how great he was? And I think it's all of those things. I used to show Boys in the Hood in my class um, and we paired it with an article, The Code of the Streets by The Atlantic. And I always thought it was really fascinating because I taught for 10 years in Chicago and most of my students were um, black or brown students. I had almost no white students in my class. And so the dialogues 
we're very centered more in the experiences of the people we were watching as opposed to now at Bowling Green, if I'm showing Boys in the Hood, I'm showing it to a mostly white audience and trying to get them to connections between their own experiences and, you know, this oppression. Um, and I think that's what John Singleton, Spike Lee, and, you know, all filmmakers and artists who try to reflect a marginalized voice, I do think for the most part, that's where it stems from, you know, and that's just true of all of us, right? That's the human experience to want to, like, stake your claim and mark your, and be seen and be heard, but we know that that is, easier for people who have certain privileges so um john singleton i mean that movie really did reflect a contemporary cultural moment and unfortunately it looks like a lot of stereotypes but i think what people who would critique it don't see is nuance that makes it not stereotypical right like because you get to know every character and you see the way their lives are intertwined and you see these symbolic you know ideologies like internalized racism you know like that's always a big scene that used to get my students was when um Cuba Gooding Jr's character gets pulled over by the black cop mm -hmm. and like that was just always really powerful to them on both sides of it like either understanding it or feeling that oh yeah you can't do that you know and then going back to that bigger conversation of like misogynoir and having to pick race versus your gender you know that's a moment where they go oh yeah you know that guy didn't want to take the side of his race he was choosing to be a cop more you know and just opens up and i think that's the point of film so whatever i'm showing but yeah, and then Spike Lee, you know, he's stayed really relevant because he's really taken on, I mean, of course you mentioned John Singleton passed, probably too young, would have loved to seen what he would continue to do. But Spike Lee really went more traditionally, you know, documentary style. While all his films were reflecting on culture and they were like, could be true. You know, he really went and made the story about the four little girls. He really did the documentary on, um, Katrina when the levees break, you know, and I think that's the piece that people are most challenged with in our country, like most white people who want to like hold on to this idea of like America, they don't want to just acknowledge the truth, you know, because they think there's going to be this big punishment for just acknowledging what happened and how we can learn from it and move on, you know, and I think film, especially films like those that take on those topics without it being your neighbor or your son, you know, you can use the character to kind of bring that conversation up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to switch gears to go into music and how pre, I want to say 87, 88, R&B was strictly an adult sound that pretty much your mom, dad, aunts, uncles would play. Mm -hmm. Hip hop was pretty much mm -hmm. radicalized, considered what rock and roll was where it's for the young it's not for adults to understand and how when key sweats make it last forever album came out guys debut album new editions heartbreak album how they combined the smooth sounds of r&b with the aggressive ruggedness of hip-hop and we got the emerging sound of new jack swing which made r&b much more youth oriented and it was something that kids could say, hey, this is R&B that's made just for me. 
it's not like Motown or Stax where it was for my parents. Yeah. Well, I always thought of that as, and so my dad's from Philly. And so we, I mean, when Boys to Men came out, it was such a big deal because they were from Philly, which was like our town kind of. And, you know, we were already Velvet DeVoe fans and they were like, you know, that whole association. And then they like went to the School of the Arts, you know, so my dad was all like, oh, School of the Arts, you know, like, and so whereas like hip hop, like you said, could be more radicalizing or like can be more divisive sometimes within the generations, that New Jack Swing and those like kind of like bridges to hip hop, you know, the hip hop vibe, but in a more... I guess maybe accessible. Like you could talk to your dad. I remember making my dad a mixtape and it was like a mix. Cause like my dad is a trumpet player and loves jazz. And so I'm like putting Tribe Called Quest on there, you know, putting Boys to Men on there, putting all the things like I'm learning about that I also think speak to like his generation, you know? And that's so important. And I think that's really important with like someone like even like Beyonce right now, you know, like even the more political she gets, she keeps those asses shaking, you know, and she does it in an accessible way, like cute little dance moves that people can emulate, you know, and I don't know, I think that New Jack Swing had that same thing. It also had like, that era was so like, said kind of fun, like nobody was too cool for anything, you know, you know, on that one Missy album, what is it maybe like, Got the folks or something where after the one song she's like back in the day big daddy came big daddy, and she talks she just kind of calls out everybody who used to dance and like it was so cool and so I think that's kind of coming back a little bit mm -hmm. and probably because of how gender is becoming a little more fluid and you know I think a lot of this reaches back to just you know hip-hop being really masculine you know and so like women in R&B were allowed to be a little sexier, you know, when you bring it into hip hop, like you said, it gets more aggressive and people aren't really sure how they feel about a sexually aggressive woman, you know, still. Um, but I think like Bruno Mars, you know, and like even just the gender fluidity and the sounds of people like um, Little Nas and Frank Ocean, you know, just kind of like guys who brought in regardless of their sexual identity they just kind of brought in some more like kind of like sexiness to hip-hop mm -hmm. yeah because if you also take a look at the k-pop explosion that's going on here in the states with bts yeah. and how all those k-pop acts that's coming over here they pretty much studied and revered u.s R&B, especially that New Jack Swing period, definitely Backstreet Boys, Instant yeah. Vibes, Boys to Men, TLC, and how, you know, we're just going to add our own flavor, our own unique spin to it. Well, I mean, I always say, and I mean, this gets tricky when you talk about, you know, the fact that we still live in a world that is not equitable, but nothing's really original when it comes to art. You know, everyone's influenced by something because you can't, separate what influences you you know like and so I teach a whole unit on advertising you know and it always wakes my students up because they just look at notice things they were never noticing before and I'm like well just because you weren't noticing that Dorito bag in the back of every shot doesn't mean it wasn't imprinting on you and it doesn't mean the next time you go to choose chips 
<laughs> you're not gonna choose Doritos. Right. I mean, if Doritos is your chip. <laughs> right, because I remember back in the day watching Soul Train and seeing all those targeted Sprite ads with Criss Cross, Heavy D, Pete Rock, CL Smooth, the Tim Duncan. Yeah, oh Hell, God, Sprite I like the how, in you. How they really uh -huh. got in bed with hip hop and say, hey, this is a demographic totally. that we're going to cater to that say, hey, we got dollars. We like to spend money. So Soul Train, um, Arsenio. And Living Color, a lot of those early 90s programs like pretty much really said to the masses, like, hey, if you make content for us, we'll come in droves. But as we saw with the history of Fox, the WB, UPN, how they started their networks on African-American programming. And then once they got what they wanted, dumped them, and we're going to put on Dawson's Creek in 7th Heaven. I know. I mean, it's real fucked up. And people, we talk about that in class. And I mean, you could just teach a whole class on 90s hip hop media politics. Do you know what I mean? Like just leaving the music completely out of it and just what was happening. Um, there's a good book. I mean, I'm sure there's quite a few, but I just read, um, it's called God Save the Queens. And it's written by Kathy Illendoli. I might be mispronouncing her name, but she's a white woman, but who worked in hip hop for years. like. She's probably older than me and I'm in my early 40s. And so I think she started out as like a local DJ and then worked her way up to like a national DJ. She worked at the source. She worked at Vibe. She like, she's just got, and she just kind of recounts this whole history of sexism that wears you down as a woman in the industry, you know? And so um, Kind of lost my train of thought but that was a good book she kind of was speaking to that evolution um yeah i have to put that on my must read list now it makes me feel old now to see 90s era fashion 90s oh, 90s, era music coming back mm -hmm. because we look at the show queens on abc you know looking at the attire the call can I, the cross colors Timberlands and the amazing critically acclaimed Hulu series about Wu-Tang and how documented their rise to fame and just like, man, mm -hmm. everybody just loves that 90s era where it was raw, authentic, and it was before somebody said, hey, let's take the authenticness out and let's put some yeah. Nutrasweet, aka Pop Sheen on it, and let's <laughs> take it worldwide. Yeah. 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 It makes me wish I had saved all my, my clothes from those eras. Not that half of them would fit me anymore, but you know, just like some of the t-shirts and stuff. Like remember hyper color t-shirts that used to like change colors. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, I yeah. Remember those. Um, yeah. Well, I think fashion, that's just another, you know, point to where hip hop's like reach, you know, the magnitude of its reach and that hopefully is going to, get reclaimed you know you mentioned Issa Rae and Insecure that's kind of a theme they're taking on in that show because she's been working with that um designer you know that black designer that she sort of had that contention with because he was posing that she was a sellout and he was trying to remain authentic and you know they're just really important conversations because it it's hard America's first and foremost capitalistic and capitalist ism is inherently racist and sexist so like nobody wins in that equation 
but you got to pay your bills. Yep. It's just not an option. So nobody really has the freedom to resist. How can any of us really resist, even if we wanted to, you know? Yeah, because of course- Not to be a downer, we find no, ways. <laughs> no, 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 not to be a Debbie Downer, but of course, um, you're since you're a big ATCQ fan in the line, check the rhyme, yeah. they say proper, what you say, hammer, proper. Everybody was disrespecting Hammer because Hammer, if it wasn't for him in the likes of Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, rap wouldn't be able to cross mainstream think of how big please hammer don't hurt him was oh i remember i mean i remember the dance we had the pants it was huge and that's the whole thing like it's just that fine line because like you said what what our culture has shown us what you know white supremacist capitalistic culture has showed us is that when you know someone who isn't of that you know ilk is successful instead of allowing them their success, you, like you said, like rip it off, replicate it, take it away from them. You know, you don't allow it to thrive. And the only way it can thrive is to model it, right? Like we're talking about Russell Simmons, maybe one of the most successful men in hip hop. Well, it turns out he's a fucking rapist and he has two daughters, like growth, you know? So you're like, where are the men that aren't, you know, also modeling a shitty, you know, method and like you know i don't i don't think all the members of tribe are necessarily saints you know and i i wrote an article about them a couple years ago right around the time fife died actually because i was writing it and he died and my deadline i was like let me publish this right away and i talked a little bit about like some of the misogynistic lyrics in their songs you know it's just i think part of what you have to do too is you have to look at they sort of teach us in like theory when you're studying theory you know and you're looking at these like texts that existed at a certain time you have to look at them in the time they were constructed right you still be critical of them right mm. but like look at something like the way we talk about like gender and trans identities now like five years ago we didn't even have this language nonetheless 20 years ago we're Lots of great writing was written. You still want to teach it, but you also have to be like, listen, the language here does not reflect what we now know. But unfortunately, you know, culture just takes a, a long time to catch up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely does. And music's such a great way to reflect the way it's catching up or progressing. Mm -hmm. Now, one era of music that I'm a huge fan of, was a huge fan of, that I felt was tainted with all the stuff that later came out about uh, Lou Pearlman was everything that came out of Orlando with Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and how Justin mm. Timberlake is now catching black from leaving Janet hanging out to dry after the Super Bowl wardrobe malfunction and how everybody's like, uh, you're not as all-American as you say you are and your career is probably going to go bye-bye-bye. Why don't people drag him? I mean, I never understood why people were so accepting of him, you know, like, and I think this is a really interesting, you know, conversation, especially looking at race and gender, right? You know, and same thing with like Eminem, what made these white guys like acceptable? You know, they're no, you know, they're just these shitty guys that are appropriating black culture just as much as like the shitty guys, like in the media, we tear down, but Justin Timberlake, um, the Janet thing that was huge and you know feminist discourses have been talking about that since it happened and in the work that I do that's just 
bottom line slut shaming. And the fact that it was a black woman, I think just made it so much easier for people to jump on like tearing down, you know, her wardrobe malfunction, her sluttiness, her sexuality, you know? And like, also at the end of the day, like it's your tits, like who gives a shit? It shouldn't be such a big fucking deal, you know? And of course every woman has a right to that and we don't live in that world. But if we didn't live in a world that was so goddamn shameful around sex anyway, you know, like it's a big effing deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Justin Timberlake can rot in hell for all I care. He's a hundred percent cheats on his wife. He was a total dick to Britney. Like, fuck him. And th- there you have it. And also, speaking of Britney, everything that uh, <laughs> nice segue. Uh, speaking of Britney, yeah, we um, love Britney. We <laughs> love Britney, and Britney is free. But mm-hmm. because of the documentary yes. that came out on Hulu and just what she had to go through with her conservatorship, and when I was talking, about, it just made me think, like, man, it's just sad how you have her in this conservatorship to where she can't do anything about anybody's permission i can't go to the bathroom without asking somebody i can't go to the atm to get 20 dollar right. bill without asking somebody right. i can't live my life because i'm constantly being told what i can what i can't do i mean it parallels so many different things in this culture you know it's just another way of reflecting again people wanting to be dominant of people that they think are less than them you know and that that dynamic wears a lot of masks in this country, right? Some Mm -hmm. much more obvious than others, but all destructive, you know? And I think looking at Britney, we just were talking about Justin, they came at the same time, right? They were on Mickey Mouse Club at the same time. They were a couple. That's where you can so easily look at the gender dynamic, right? Why did he just get successful? And what did they do differently? They dated people. They what she had sex you think he was having sex like is is it that she got pregnant and like married like what made her mentally unstable but just like let him be a fucking dude and i don't really have an answer but i know wholeheartedly it has to do with gender dynamics and the morality we attach to women that we don't attach to men Mm -hmm. i definitely agree and i want to get your take on this with uh social media and the way our world is and how you don't really see a lot of groups anymore do you think that we'll see Mm. the rise of groups and boy groups again or do you think that we're too individualistic now to where i'm gonna say i want to form a four five man group split my money four or five ways and be able to have success to where If I'm a solo star, I get to keep all the money. Um, I mean, it could, that could be part of it, you know, and I think that certainly might be part of it. I don't know. I think, yeah, to your point, technology is a huge reason because there was a time where you couldn't create music by yourself, essentially, or you could, but it was a lot, took a lot more resources. It took a lot more time. It took a lot more know-how. But I also think, you know, as someone who's a creative myself, it can be really hard to find people that you connect with creatively, you know? And so I think that that could be just part of it overall. Like some people, and again, that whole tradition of like a group is sort of like 
one lead person and everyone else just kind of supports them, you know, but I hear what you're saying, like kind of like Backstreet Boys, Spice Girls, like kind of that whole era of, and even if you think again of like the Motown era, um, yeah, I really don't know. I hope it's not just driven by like a financial desire to keep your profits. I would think it's, it's a little bit of both, but also just people exploring technology and seeing what they can do solo. Oh. Mm -hmm. I would love to see some more groups. I love what um, Anderson Pack and Bruno Mars are doing, the Silk Sonic. I think that's a really cute collaboration and a nice, like, it's just easy, you know, and it's not going to offend anyone or hurt anyone's feelings. No, that whole album was pretty much to me a sexy. love letters. Yes, yeah, a love letter. Yeah. 70s, 70s soul, pretty much everything totally. that came out of Philly with uh, Gamble and Huff and Philly International. Yep, yep. I love it. I yeah, love and speaking Instagram. of Bruno. I just can, like seeing it. Yeah, and speaking of Bruno, you could tell he pretty much studied who came before him from the likes of James Brown, Michael Jackson, Prince, and it's just pretty much doing yeah. a modern take on those three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the conversation about talent is different than a conversation about success and popularity, right? Because mm. you know just as well as anyone, you get successful and popular based on these like fucked ups and equitable systems. You don't get popular just because people like your song the most. That's just bullshit. Not to mention, Art, even if it's the poppiest of pop music, it's still in the category of art, right? Mm -hmm. For all intents and purposes. Art is subjective. You're not, not everyone's supposed to like every fucking song. Not everyone's supposed to like every fucking movie. How boring would that be? You know, that's some bullshit, you know, opiate of the masses shit. Like you're supposed to get pissed at, I mean, but I also think I say that and think that we can still have a dynamic, thriving, unique culture without all the like trauma and violence and harm that has led us to that. You know, I think moving forward, you can still have voice and art and, you know, call attention to injustices that are always going to, you know, somehow happen because that's humanity. But I think we can definitely create a much more just and compassionate world, you mm. know? and still be like artistic and engaging and you know right yeah right someday there'll be aliens we have to fight so right and uh let's be banding together now yeah and last thing before i get you out of here so talk about All the right. evolution of the protest record from the singer songwriters of the 60s like uh Woody Guthrie, Joan Baez and those likes and then of course Marvin Gaye, Public Enemy and NWA, Kendrick Lamar, and how music can be used to bring a voice to the voiceless and how with social media at the click of a button, you can send out your message to the masses and how can the modern yeah. day protest song pretty much engage listeners and people alike to go out, mobilize, and do something? Yeah. That's a great question, you know, and I think, I really, do you know Jamila Woods out of Chicago? Um, name rings a bell. Yeah, you should look her up, because just like Rhapsody, she had an album in 2019 that was all Black artists, and most of them were women, but there were also a couple men, and 
all the songs felt like protest songs because one thing she was doing was raising awareness of these black artists and their contributions, but her lyrics were really like insightful too, you know, and not just insight, like seeing like insight, like a flame, you know, like insightful, like calls to action. Um, I also, I showed lemonade in my class this semester for the first time I'm teaching cultural pluralism to undergraduates, most of whom are white kids. And I think that whole project is really a great like modern day protest site, you know, and she does uh, collaborate with Kendrick Lamar and, you know, Kendrick Lamar's album winning the Pulitzer, I think is also really reflective of the way things are changing, but also like the way our culture, like it's an acceptable protest album, just like those songs you mentioned were, you know, at the time they were like brought in by people that had earned enough trust. You know, Kendrick Lamar has really established himself. And now that he's won that blitzer, it actually will probably give him more allowance to like push the envelope. So I hope he does. Um, but I really thought Beyonce's Formation was a great modern protest song because it was kind of like you were saying earlier about um, these different sites of accessibility, like in, information like also spells out information, you know, and the whole video, the way it like came out, the way Beyonce, like her performance of at the Super Bowl, I think is one of the most like subversive protests you know, they were black women dancing on the gridiron, you know, like not on a stage, like on the fucking field. Um, I think the intersection of sport and blackness and the way Beyonce like kind of played that is just really, really, really fascinating. And um, I would love to see more protests in like the NFL and these like sports compounds. And I think that music, the crossover with music has a lot of like potential for that. I definitely agree. Yeah. Uh, read the book, William C. Roden's $40 million slaves. Great book. And also check out the great film, Julie Dash, Daughters of the Dust, which Beyonce pays homage to in Lemonade, which yep. is about the Gullah yep. culture down in the low country in mm -hmm. South Carolina. So mm -hmm. definitely take, take note of those. It'd be somebody's great stocking stuff, and you never know. So, any shout outs you want to give before we wrap, and also plug your socials? Uh, my socials are just at Alicia Swizz, and I have a website where, in addition to um, sharing my feminist musings and rants, I do like feminist guidance sessions. So, I read tarot cards and astro charts and help people get, you know, a little more in touch with their divine feminine power, which everyone of all genders needs to get in touch with. Yeah, so holla at Alicia Swizz if you want to get out of Mercury retrograde. So you can catch this yeah. interview wherever you stream podcasts <laughs> and on my YouTube channel, Beyond the Album Cover. This is the last Beyond the Album Cover for 2021. We'll have all new episodes Ooh. in 2022. So from my family to yours, wishing you a wonderful holiday season, prosperous new year. We'll see you with new beyond the album cover episodes in 2022 thank you everybody for all the love and support for the podcast is only going to keep getting bigger and better from here and thank you my good friend my good buddy alicia swizz 
for coming on to the podcast. I truly appreciate you. Like I said earlier, you saw firsthand the work, you know, from the time machine to this. And Back in the day. I can't be more proud of what you're doing, enlightening the youth, kicking the truth, being your true no holds bar authentic self. And I appreciate you for that, buddy. Thank you, Drell. You too. Thank you.